We continue our study of the uh, Psalms of the uh, degrees, and for the benefit of our guest, uh, I do need to briefly touch on the view we are taking on the origin of these Psalms. Uh, we are taking the position that King Hezekiah uh, compiled these 15 Psalms to celebrate the miracle of the degrees. Uh, in this miracle, uh, God calls the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz to go backwards. That was a sort of a timekeeping of peace back at that time in Jerusalem. And uh, God calls that uh, to go back 10 degrees, thus creating uh, supernaturally a longer day. Uh, God performed the miracle as a sign to Hezekiah that he would heal Hezekiah from a terminal disease, uh, add 15 years to his life, and deliver the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. We believe that Hezekiah chose 15 psalms to correspond to the number of years added to his life, and that he himself wrote the 10 anonymous psalms in the group to correspond to the 10 degrees, the shadow of the sun went back on the sundial. Another interesting observation is that the 15 psalms seem to be arranged in five trios, with the first psalm in each trio uh, speaking of trouble, the second trust in God, and the third triumph. Uh, this explains the series title, Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. Today we come to Psalm 126, which is the first psalm in the third trio, which I've entitled, God Can Complete What He Begins. So I hope you uh, picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes, and you'll see Psalm 126 uh, printed there for you uh, in your notes. So let's read this psalm. Uh, and this is from the New International Version. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Now, before we look at the historical background of Psalm 126, let me just share several general observations about the psalm. It is abundantly clear uh, from verses 1 and 4, that the psalm is about restoring the fortunes of Zion. Zion being, of course, uh, as we've seen in previous studies, a reference to Jerusalem. Look again at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And you go down to verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord. So again, abundantly clear, it's about the restoration of Jerusalem. Now, in the King James Version and the American Standard Version, instead of uh, reading in verses 1 and 4 about restoring the fortunes, the phrase in those translations is translated to, to bring back, uh, to turn, or restore the captivity or the captive ones. And although uh, this particular phrase is used in the Bible uh, to speak of God delivering His people from literal captivity, the phrase is often used in the Bible to refer to God bringing His people out of any affliction or trouble uh, to a place of blessing or triumph. And there are many examples of this in the Bible. One that I'll share with you just to give you an example, uh, Job 42, uh, verse 10, we read, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. And that phrase is the identical phrase that's found in Psalm 126. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And, of course, it's obvious that Job was never in literal captivity to men, but he was in captivity to his affliction. Uh, 
So when the Lord turned the captivity of Job, it is explained in the text that the Lord gave Job what? Twice as much as he had before. God brought Job out of multiplied afflictions into multiplied blessings, out of exceeding great sorrow into inexpressible joy. So bottom line, the phrase, restore the fortunes, is a Hebrew idiom referring to the end of any trouble or affliction and being restored to a place of blessing. Just in passing, let me just mention, uh, going back to that Job passage, it's interesting when, uh, when God restored his fortunes. It's when he what? Prayed for his uh, troublemakers, those supposed friends that came along his side and uh, uh, heaped condemnation and guilt on him. And as he prayed for them, forgave them, expressed kindness to them, uh, God uh, delivered him from his affliction uh, to know God's blessing. Now, going back to Psalm 126, we also see uh, very, very clearly the psalm falls into two equal halves. The first half being verses 1 and 3, and the second half, verses 4 and 6. Each half, as we've already seen, opens with the similar wording about restoring of fortunes, but there is an obvious difference between the two halves, and you probably uh, notice that yourself. In the first half, the psalmist is praising God for a restoration that's already taken place. Notice how the psalm opens. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Verses 2 and 3 describes the ecstasy of joy that Jerusalem experienced because of the great things God had done for them, and that even the surrounding nations became awestruck over what God had done for His people. Now, when you move to the second half of the psalm, notice the shift from praise for past restoration to a prayer for future restoration, or at least asking God to complete uh, a restoration already begun. And, uh, and this is why I believe Psalm 126 would be one of those psalms of trouble, uh, because as we're going to see, although God had done already a miraculous work, there was much more that needed to be done. There were many, many more challenges uh, going forward. And then what the psalmist does uh, is gives two very vivid images of the restoration that he's asking for from God. Uh, the first image in verse 4, he says, Restore our fortunes like the streams in the Negev. Uh, and that speaks of suddenness. Uh, there are few places on planet Earth that are more arid and dry than the Negev, and few transformations more dramatic than after a downpour of rain, a dry gu gu gully uh, becomes a life-giving stream, turning a desert area into a place of grass and flowers overnight. The second image of restoration in the last two verses pictures the heartbreaking labor and perseverance of a farmer uh, sowing his crops, but then the struggles become replaced by the joy of reaping the harvest. So it is very striking what the psalmist does in using uh, both of these images and asking God for restoration. I believe the first speaks of God's sovereignty, and the second, the believer's responsibility. While only God can bring the rain to restore and transform our lives into a spiritual oasis, our part is what? persevering in our labors for God, persevering in our faith in God like a far farmer, confident God will bless. As we read in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So with those general observations, let's move now to the historical background that you see in your notes as we attempt to connect the psalm uh, with its history. Uh, and we'll just read through this. I'll pause from time to time to uh, amplify, but you can follow in your notes. In the first half of the psalm, uh, Hezekiah uh, praised God for his miraculous de deliverance of Jerusalem from the powerful and ruthless Assyrian army. And uh, this has been highlighted in many of our previous studies of the Psalms of the Degrees. 
And it's very, very important to remember the situation that they were in to get the full impact of this psalm. Uh, The Assyrian record of the invasion of Judah reveals the overthrow of 46 fortified cities in Judah, with Jerusalem being the last city left standing. Uh, We're told that the Assyrians captured 200,000 people, confiscated all the livestock throughout Judah, ravished the agricultural fields, and stripped Judah of all of its wealth When you remember, we've already seen this in previous studies, when initially Hezekiah sort of wavered in his faith and he tried to buy off the Assyrians by giving them all the silver and gold, not only in the temple, but the national treasury of the nation. Uh, The Assyrians cut off all the supply lines to Jerusalem, and King Sennacherib uh, boasted he had King Hezekiah trapped in Jerusalem like a caged bird. Uh, From a military perspective, Jerusalem could resist for a short time because of their strong fortifications, but due to the vast superiority of the Assyrian army, army, a defeat appeared inevitable. Uh, Because of Hezekiah's refusal to surrender due to his trust in God, and again, these are all things we've seen in previous lessons, Uh, The people knew if the Assyrians prevailed, they would make an example of Jerusalem by leveling the city, taking no prisoners, and prior to death, they would suffer horrific abuse and torture. The situation seemed impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible, as we see in 2 Kings 19, verses 32 through 35. Let me just... Again, we've, we've focused on these verses in the past, but let me just read them again for you. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Now this helps us understand the description given in Psalm 126 of Jerusalem's response to God's deliverance. When the people woke up that morning to see the destruction of the Assyrian army, verse 1 reads, we were like those who dreamed. When you awake, and we've all had this experience, when you awake from a good dream, there is a feeling of euphoria which soon fades away as you realize it was just a dream and the harsh realities of life were unchanged. But for the people of Jerusalem, they were living the dream and they were excited. Uh, God had delivered them from the dreaded Assyrians and all their fears. As we read in verses 2 and 3, their mouths were filled with uncontrollable laughter as they sang songs of praise from hearts filled to overflowing with joy to God. Uh, now go back to the back side of your notes for the, uh, as we continue the background. Now in the second half of the so that's the first half of the psalm. This, this praise for God's deliverance over the uh, Assyrians. It's just uncontrollable joy that they just could not contain. Uh, and almost a dream that, that was unbelievable. And now in the second half of the psalm, we find a prayer. A prayer for God to complete the restoration of their fortunes, and I believe that prayer was based on a promise that God gave through the prophet Isaiah that's also in 2 Kings chapter 19 in verses 29 through 31. And let me read those verses for you. Here's the promise. He says to Hezekiah, then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself referring to the crops in Judah. In the second year, what springs from the same? And in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. 
And the thing to understand here is, is although the uh, Assyrian army had been defeated and they had retreated back uh, to their homeland of Assyria, they had totally, absolutely disrupted the agricultural base of the nation of Judah, Uh, had devastated uh, its economy. This was a uh, people that uh, were, were dependent upon their crops it was an agricultural uh, community. And, and so what God is promising here is what? There's going to come a day when they will be fruitful again, when God will restore the land, restore the crops in, in abundance. And, and, of course, this is the crisis. I believe this uh, practical crisis being addressed in the psalm for God to complete the restoration that he's begun. And this promise was also given, if you listen, as a symbol to the surviving remnant. That God would what? Root them downward in His grace in order to cause them to rise upward to be fruitful once again. So Psalm 126 is a prayer for God to complete the restoration of the land and the people as He promised. But also an acknowledgement of their need to persevere in trust and obedience. Even though the restoration of the land And spiritual restoration of the people will involve sowing in tears. The work uh, of restoration will be difficult, frustrating, at times disappointing. As they persevere in their faith in God, they will reap a great harvest with joy. So again, just to sum it up, prayer 126, uh, Psalm 126 is a prayer, or the latter part of that psalm, for God to complete the restoration. Even as He had delivered them from the Assyrians... Uh, that gave them confidence now He will restore the crops. He will restore our, our lives as we're our spiritual lives and raise up the remnant for His honor and His glory. Now, what I want to spend the rest of our time today on is lessons to be learned uh, for uh, today. I want to apply this to our lives today. And look at that first point in your sermon notes How much more, in other words, when we look at their praise and their joy for God's deliverance, when He delivered them from the Assyrian invasion, how much more should our hearts be filled with joy and our mouths filled with praise to God for delivering us from eternal destruction? In other words, we're facing something much, much worse than the Assyrian invasion. Uh, We were facing eternal destruction. Destruction. Take your Bibles and look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, just to uh, remind us of uh, the state that we are in and the amazing mercy and love of God and uh, delivering us from uh, our sinful condition and eternal destruction. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And by the way, it's important to notice, notice the very first word is and, which connects you back to chapter 1. And the last few verses of chapter 1 talks about the resurrection of Christ from the dead and being exalted to that high place of authority in heaven. And of course, there's an obvious connection. As God raised Jesus from the dead in His resurrection to exalt Him in heaven, God has raised believers from spiritual death to be exalted with Christ. Amen? Notice, and you were, what's that next word? Dead. So that's the first thing about our condition prior to coming to know Christ. We were dead. And of course, dead in the Bible is never about cessation of life. It's about separation. When it refers to death, uh, talk, you go to James, it talks about when the body is separated from the spirit, death occurs. So the spirit continues. We're immortal beings, but the, death, but the body dies. So death in the Bible always refers to separation. So when it says we are dead, it means we are separated from God. Separated from God in this life and separated from God in the next life. Without hope, without meaning, without any hope of finding purpose or uh, fulfillment. And the reason that we're dead is the very next phrase, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
In other words, we are dead because we are what? Depraved. And we're depraved because we're guilty of trespasses and sins. That word trespass has the idea of crossing a line that has been established. So God has provided boundaries for us. He's given us moral absolutes. And He's given those for, to us to protect us and to provide for us true joy. But as sinners, we have transgressed. We have crossed those lines that He has set. We have disobeyed God, and not only have we disobeyed God, but the word sins has the idea of missing the mark, that we've missed the standard that God has set. And that standard is what? God's glory, God's holiness, God's character. So we're not only guilty of sins of commission because we've violated God's laws, we're also guilty of sins of what? Omission because we fail to reach that standard that God has set of His holiness, of His, of His glory. So I am dead in my sins, separated from God, because I am depraved, and as a result, I'm, look at verse 3, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, notice, children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, Andy Merritt was doomed to the eternal garbage heap of hell uh, because of my dead, depraved uh, condition. I was born in sin, I choose sin, I practice sin, and therefore I am doomed. But then notice verse 4. And again, my, my purpose here is not to give a detailed exposition of this passage. It's just to remind us of the wonderful deliverance that we've been given by God. As those who were dead, depraved, doomed, without hope, uh, uh, without the ability, of course, to save, to deliver ourselves. But verse 4, but God. Don't those two precious words? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. So what did God do for those that were dead, depraved, and doomed? He loved us. And He loved us by sending His Son into this world while we were yet sinners to die for the penalty of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And He not only loved us, but He lifted us. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So He not only loved us, but He lifted us out of our sin to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God, and literally to become trophies of His grace, where He shows His kindness, He shows His mercy off through our lives. In taking dead, again, depraved, doomed sinners, and loving us, and lifting us up out of that mire of sin to be brought into His righteousness. And He not only loved us, He not only lifted us. Notice He liberated us. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. My simple point is this. We read of how the... Uh, how Jerusalem responded to the deliverance from the Assyrians. They were like they were in a dream. Just this uncontrollable laughter. Their hearts overflowing with joy, singing to the top of their lungs these songs of praise. And all I'm saying is, when you realize what God has delivered us from, dead sinners, depraved sinners, doomed sinners, and a God who, out of His mercy and His mercy alone, when we had no ability to save ourselves, He loved us, lifted us, and liberated. How much more should we praise Him? How much more should our hearts be filled to overflowing with gratitude for God? You know, I'll, I'll be very transparent with you for a moment. 
I was saved September 20th, 1970. I have never to this day been able to get over my salvation. Every single day, I am overcome with joy for what God did for me. All I have to do is remember. All I have to do is remember my condition before I came to know Christ. I came to the place that I realized I literally was a dead man walking. That I could not find any fulfillment, any purpose. I came to the conclusion there is no hope in this world. There is no true meaning and fulfillment. And I came to the conclusion the most compassionate thing I could do would be to take my life. And when I got to my lowest state, God, in His mercy, looked upon Andy Merritt, dead, depraved, doomed, and He loved me. And He lifted me, and He liberated me, and He changed and transformed my life. I'll never get over that. I will never get over that to the day I die. Look at the second. Well, I'll never get over that throughout all eternity, right? Not just the day I die. Look at the second application. How much more should we put our trust in God, knowing there is never a need so great He cannot meet, a heart so dark He cannot penetrate, or a trial so so dire He cannot deliver from? How much more should we put our trust in God, knowing there is never a need so great he cannot meet, a heart so dark he cannot penetrate, or a trial so dire he cannot deliver from. Again, I'm just going back to the deliverance from the Assyrians. It looked like from a human perspective, it was an impossible situation. It was absolutely impossible. And and I shared with you, we, we saw this in previous lessons, we alluded to it a moment ago. They knew if they would not resist the Assyrians, if they would just surrender, that although they would go into captivity, most of their lives would be spared. But they knew that if they resisted, if they did not surrender, and they were overcome by the Assyrians, as I mentioned, they knew what would happen because they, they knew the track record of the Assyrians. They, anybody that resisted the Assyrians, they, they just took them, we're going to make an example out of them to encourage people in the future not to resist but to surrender. And in, in the, in the, it would be the most horrific, as I mentioned, abuse and torture uh, prior to death. They would just literally level the cities. They would burn everything, burn the crops. They would just leave the place just absolutely desolate. There was no way in their own strength they had the ability to overcome the Assyrians. They knew that. As we talked about in previous lessons... When they got on their wall, on top of those walls, and they looked with these physical eyes, all they could see was that massive Assyrian army. But they couldn't see God with these eyes. God's invisible. And they had to make a choice. Hezekiah had to make a choice. Am I going to follow what I can see in my eyes? Am I going to focus on this impossible situation? Or as we've talked about before, am I going to focus on the fact that it's impossible for God to break the promise He's given to me? And Hezekiah made a choice. He said, I'm going to trust God. This looks impossible. I don't know how, but I'm going to trust God. And he trusted God. And they didn't surrender. And they were ready to resist. And, of course, God gave them this glorious victory. My simple point is, how much more should we trust God in our lives today? When we encounter needs, when we encounter trials. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, great example of this if you'd like to turn to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. It's a... Uh, one of my favorite passages I've, I've mentioned before, I believe 2 Corinthians is probably my favorite of all of Paul's writings because uh, it almost has an, sort of an 
autobiography sort of flair to it. He seems to be much more transparent in this book than he is in any of his other writings about his own life and his own struggles. And uh, this is one of those times where he gives us a glimpse into uh, one of these horrific trials that he encountered and, uh, and what God did. And uh, I love this. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we should not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Amen? So my simple point is, if Hezekiah and the children of Judah could put their trust in God in an impossible situation, you can trust God today in what you're facing. Your trials, your needs, uh, those individuals that you're struggling with. And yes, Paul is acknowledging the reality that we do get stressed out. He acknowledged, I became burdened excessively. It was beyond my strength, my ability to cope with it. He, said, he mentioned that I despaired. I was in distress. I mean, I thought the sentence of death was on me. But he said, God allowed me to go through this to teach me what? Not to trust in myself, but to trust in God who raises from the dead. And that's exactly what he was doing with King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. He was teaching them to put their trust in Him. Remember how we talked about in a previous lesson, God is ruthless about what? Kicking those crutches out from underneath of us. Those crutches that we lean on that become substitutes for God. That prevent us from leaning on Him totally to discover intimacy with Him. So what God does, He kicks those crutches out. He causes us to lean on Him. To realize just how dependent we are on God. How desperate we are for God. To create a determination in our hearts to follow God, to know God, to seek Him, and to embrace, embrace Him. So how much more should we trust our God knowing truly there is no need so great He cannot meet, so, no heart so dark He cannot uh, penetrate, or any trial so dire He cannot deliver from. Look at the third application. How much more should we see our time of crisis as God's opportunity to display His greatness to a lost world? In other words, we see this very, very clearly. Psalm 126, and we've seen it in some of the previous psalms, mentions that the surrounding nations became awestruck that as a result of God delivering His people in their crisis, what resulted is that God was magnified, God was exalted. And that's how God wants to use us. Uh, I, I like to use the, 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 the phrase, He wants to use us as His telescope and His microscope. See, there are a lot of people that only see Jesus as some sort of distant figure in history that has no impact on their lives today, no impact on the world today. And God wants to use us as a telescope that through our lives, our testimonies, to bring God up close and personal to those who seem only at a distance. And then there are so many others that in this world uh, today that sees Him as so small, so insignificant, and God wants to use us as a magnifying glass to demonstrate how great our God is, to exalt Him in the lives of others. And this is what He did through delivering Jerusalem from the Assyrians. And God wants us to realize when we hit times of crisis that this is His opportunity to demonstrate His power and to make Himself known to those lost people that are looking at our lives in order to demonstrate His reality to a lost world. And so we need to stop whining when we hit those crises and realize God wants to shine through this. And so we surrender to Him, knowing that He's at work, not only in my life, but He wants to use my trial, my crisis, to demonstrate His grace and power to others that they would be drawn to Him. We see this beautifully in Philippians chapter 1 in the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, uh, verses 20 and 21. He says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You know the circumstances in which he wrote those words. He was in prison. He had had a four-year imprisonment. 
Paul's one dream in life was to go to Rome as a preacher to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets to Rome not as a preacher, but as a prisoner. And he could have have sulked in that cell. He could have plunged into disappointment. Why God? Four-year imprisonment. Why have you put me in these shackles? And he would have totally wasted the sorrow, wasted the crisis, an opportunity for God to demonstrate himself. But he did not do that. At this point, he was in somewhat of, of darkness. We all get in those times when we get in what I like to call the maze of God's providence, where we can't see the beginning from the end. But God wants to say, you can trust me in that maze. You can trust me when it gets dark. You can trust me in your pain and your perplexity. That I want to use this crisis as my opportunity to demonstrate my glory to others. So instead of whining, Paul praised God. And because he praised God and he trusted God, you know exactly what happened. He was chained to those praetorian guards in shifts, in four-hour shifts, six guards a day. He shared Christ with those Praetorian guards. Many of them came to know Jesus. As a result, Caesar's own household, the household of Nero, was penetrated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells us in Philippians 1, as a result of his imprisonment, Jesus became the talk of Rome. He even calls his imprisonment, the the language he uses in the Greek text, is that it was a pioneer advancement for the gospel. It's a term that was used by the military in that day of engineers that would open up a way into new territories for Romans to, to make conquest. And he says, that's what God has done in my imprisonment. He's taken my crisis. He's used it as his opportunity to put himself on display. So instead of praying, you know, God, get me out of this prison, what he's praying for, God, don't let me Shame myself by bringing reproach to your name through unbelief and murmuring and complaining and criticizing and whining. No, God, right now, in this situation, be magnified in my by whether I live or whether I die, whether Nero chops my head off or I'm delivered from this. Just let me demonstrate your glory, your beauty. Use my crisis as your opportunity for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Look at the fourth application. How much more should we pray with confidence that God will complete the work He began in us? How much more should we pray with confidence that God will complete the work He began in us? I think this is the essence of Psalm 126. Again, if, if, if you put it together, you know, it, it begins with this praise for God delivering them from the Assyrian invasion. But of course, their troubles were not over. The Assyrian army had totally ravished their crops. And they were totally dependent upon that to survive. Their land had been ravished. It, often it refers to this remnant, these survivors. Because so many had perished, so many had been taken away captive by the Assyrians. And so, although there had been this tremendous deliverance, the moment they sort of came out of that dream and began to look around, they realized, whoa, there's a lot that's got to happen for us to go, go forward. But the confidence that God gave them in that deliverance provided the foundation for their prayer, that what God has begun, He's going to complete. If he delivered us from the Assyrians, he's going to take us the rest of the way by restoring the land physically and by restoring us spiritually. Amen? And that's what he said in that promise, that I will restore the land. It will once again bear fruit. You can count on it. And then he uses that in his analogy, and you as a people, you're, I'm going to root you downward, and you're going to come up fruitful, fruitful, fruitful. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 6, what a great, great verse. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it into the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? So the point I'm making is the same type of confidence that you see in Psalm 126 about God, gonna, about God completing the restoration he began. We should have that same confidence in God concerning our spiritual life. We should have that same confidence concerning this church. 
God is not finished with us yet. We can be confident in Him. So whether it's dealing with my own spiritual life or the life of this church or the larger church in a whole, again, I don't need to complain. I do not need to fall into discouragement, disillusionment, no matter what I'm seeing, no matter what the difficulty. I'm not saying there aren't difficulties, there are not problems, that, but God's on our side. And if He's for us, who can be against us? And I can have the confidence that the work He began in ending marriage, He's going to complete. The work He began at Edgewood Baptist Church, He's going to complete. Because He said, I will build my church in what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So again, how much more should we pray with confidence that God will complete the work? We, we, so, we so easily become so critical. Critical about our own lives. Critical about the lives of others. Critical about the life of the church. We go, where is our confidence in God? We just talked about a moment ago. We can't bring restoration. That's a work of God. Only God can bring the rain to transform the arid land into an oasis. But yes, we're to cooperate with that in putting our confidence in God, putting our faith in God to labor and to persevere, not in a performance way, thinking that our efforts are going to obtain that, but doing it out of faith, confidence that God is at work. God will do what He said He would do. And that gives me the grace to persevere, not to give up, not to become discouraged. Another great verse here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, faithful is he who calls you who also will what? Bring it to pass. Folks, our, I just don't have time. We'll, we'll, we'll have opportunity to touch on this in going forward. But folks, our biggest problem is unbelief. It's unbelief. If you're struggling with a sin issue, the biggest problem is unbelief. If you're struggling in whatever it is, the issue is unbelief. And God wants to bring us to a place of faith, confidence in Him. And it's that faith that also gives us the grace and the courage to obey Him, to be co-laborers with Him and persevere. And then look at the fifth application. How much more should we pray like they prayed in Psalm 126, for God to revive and fill our lives with Jesus so that we fill our world with Jesus. How much more should we pray for God to revive and fill our lives with Jesus so that we fill our world with Jesus, so that we become an oasis of Jesus, that out from our lives, out from our church, will flow the light, life, and love, grace, and truth of Christ. To a lost, dying world, a world that is dead in their sin, depraved, doomed, like I was dead, depraved, doomed. And if God can do it for Andy Merritt, He can do it for anybody. Ephesians 3, what a great prayer. What a great prayer along these lines. And it's a, it's a prayer that I pray daily. 14 through 2, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom, my, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives His name. And here's the prayer, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Notice, in the inner man. And He wants that strengthening in the inner man so that Christ may dwell comfortably in your hearts through faith. So that Christ can have a home in your heart where there's no rival to Christ, where there's no refusal of Christ. There's never any retreat from what Christ has called you to do. Again, where He's comfortable living in you, with you, where you are not resisting Him, but you're tender to Him, tender to His Word, to put your confidence, your faith in Him, and that walk of trust and obedience. And that you being rooted and grounded in love. I am rooted and grounded in love from which nothing can sever me. From which nothing can uproot me. 
that I might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's what he's after. He wants to get all the crud out of my life to fill me with Jesus so that I, so that I can fill my world with Jesus. So I can fill my family with Jesus. I can fill my church with Jesus. I can fill my neighborhood with Jesus, my workplace, my school with Jesus. Now to him, to who? To him who is what? Able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then look at the sixth and final application that we'll mention. How much more? Should we sow the seed of God's Word confident if we do not grow weary, we'll reap a harvest of souls. Again, you, you see this, uh, we mentioned in Psalm 126, uh, this reliance on the sovereignty of God. They re recognize a total dependence upon Him. It has to be a faith walk. But that faith walk produces works. Faith without works is what? Dead, James said. So as I put my confidence in God, as I put my faith, I'm never without hope. And that hope gives me the ability to persevere in obedience, to persevere in laboring in God's work and cooperating with Him uh, to align my life, my family, our church, whatever it might be, in harmony with His, with His Word. And, uh, of course, uh, the parable of the sower, uh, Matthew uh, 13. And uh, I was going to do a little bit more there, but our time is basically gone. But here's the point in that, in that parable Folks, it's our job what? To sow the seed, uh, to distribute, to dispense God's Word. Only God can prepare the human heart. Only God can prepare. You know, one of the things I pray uh, coming into any Sunday service or any time of teaching is that, God, will you now supernaturally prepare the hearts of those that will be present? Break up the fallow ground of our hearts. Make our hearts fertile soil so that it is prepared to receive your word, so your word can take root, so that your word can blossom, so that your word can uh, produce fruit in our lives uh, for your honor and for your, for your glory. And so, and we see in that parable, it, it's tough. We, we don't always get the reception that we would desire. Uh, there are hard hearts. Uh, there are shallow, superficial commitments that, that are often made. But there are will always be those hearts that God is prepared. And that as I share God's Word, as you share God's Word, uh, it will take root and it will produce fruit for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what a beautiful, beautiful prayer that's found in 126. Praise and prayer when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So there is the praise for the deliverance God has given us, but then the prayer for God to complete what He's begun. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, we return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Bow with me in prayer. I'll just give you a moment to uh, reflect on the challenges you received today, those sort of six questions. Um, you know, I've often said from the pulpit, listening to a message is never changed anyone. It's responding to the message. It's humbling ourselves to the message, being attentive to God's Word, uh, receiving it with an attitude to uh, walk in it. And as we do that, God comes in His power, enabling power uh, to do that. So, I would just encourage you right now in these few seconds, would you, could you just sort of focus in on one of those six points? that possibly sort of stood out to you the most that would relate to your life in 
where you are right now. Maybe it's the need to focus on what God has done for you and fill your heart with joy or praise. Maybe it's to see your crisis as God's opportunity and surrender your crisis to Him to do exactly that, to acknowledge, forgive me, God. Forgive me for my whining. Forgive me for my complaining, critical spirit. So I want to surrender this to be your opportunity to demonstrate you, whatever it might be. So just pick out one of those six and just, and just respond to God right now and pray that He'll give you the grace to walk in that truth. Father, thank you that although um, we were dead in our sin, depraved sinners inside and out, doomed to the garbage heap of eternity, hell, despite that, you are rich in your mercy. And you loved us. And by your grace, you lifted us up with Christ. And liberated us, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. To walk in newness of life. And we praise you for that, for that day when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. So Lord, yes, fill our hearts with praise. Um, Lord, help us... To see just how terrible our condition was. How hopeless our condition was. To see how great a salvation you've given us. And then Lord, uh, so many lessons to learn from uh, what we've been looking at with the uh, deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. That yes, there is no need so great you cannot meet it. There is no heart so dark you cannot penetrate and there is no trial so dire that you cannot deliver us from and we want to believe that Lord we do we want to trust that right now where we are in our lives we want to give you our crisis to be your opportunity Uh, we want to uh, be confident that the work you have begun in us the work you've begun in this church you will complete Uh, father uh, deal with our unbelief Uh, Lord we read of the children of Israel the reason they were not able to enter the promised land was unbelief And they never knew that wonderful rest of faith as they put their trust in you. So, Lord, may we not make the same error, but may you teach us to believe, teach us to put our trust and faith in you, uh, not just for our initial salvation, but for every moment of every day and every trial, every crisis, that we would walk in him even as we received him by faith. So, uh, Lord, continue to uh, grow us. Uh, continue to apprehend us uh, and take us deeper in our total and utter dependence upon you, creating a desperation for you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.